Hi, welcome to episode 29 of the Theory of the Postdoc Evolution, the podcast from the Postdoctoral Development Center at Queen's University Belfast. This is the recording of an online panel discussion from June 2023, which was chaired by Dr. Philip Martin, a postdoctoral researcher in the School of Mass and Physics. He talked to Dr. Mark Coughlin, research and development physicist at Andor Technology, Dr. Rebecca Lutton, CEO at Lintel, and Dr. Roy Beatrice, Director of Sales at Tensor GEO. Thank you, Mark, Roy, and Rebecca for joining us today. We'll start with some individual questions, just talking about your academic background and your current roles. So we'll start with Mark. Do you mind, Mark, telling us about your academic background, what your PhD was about? Yeah, so actually I've been at Queen's for quite a long time. Before I left, um, I started at undergraduate physics degree in 2009, just in, in pure physics, and then kind of decided to stay on after that for a PhD. So the PhD was in ion acceleration from using high intensity lasers. We would generate bursts of radiation and then study how the protons and electrons kind of interacted with materials on really, really short time scales. So on the nanosecond to picosecond time scale. So we developed like an imaging technique to do that. And then once I finished my PhD, I kind of liked the research. So I thought I'd stay on for a couple of years. So I did a, a postdoc for four years until I decided to leave in 2021. Okay, thank you. Uh, and can you tell us about your transition from academia to your current role in Andor? What motivated that change? It was a couple of things probably. Like, So I left in November 2021, and that was kind of just at the end of lockdowns and COVID and things. So I kind of realized at the time, like the, st the stuff I really loved about working in academia, and especially experimental physics, was being, you know, being in the lab and obviously when you're stuck at home working from home that wasn't an option and then a kind of a confluence of events and things that like happened that you know my funding was starting to run out and I was thinking about applying for fellowships and then I realized as I was writing the applications that you know I didn't really want to stay and become a lecturer as such things I really liked was the sort of hands-on experimental stuff so it just so happened that one of my friends worked at Andor and he was saying that, you know, they're looking to hire physicists and that kind of sort of pushed me over to the edge to, you know, oh, well, I'll, I'll put in an application and see what happens. And then I got uh, offered the job and now I'm here sort of two years later. Very good. And can you tell us about Andor? What do they do? And then what is your role within Andor? Well, Andor is kind of like a scientific imaging company. So they make, they're probably well known for their cameras for high performance imaging, but they also make sort of microscopy divisions and spectrographs and they're branching out into a few other things like cryostats and stuff like that. My role is like an R&D physicist. At the start, you kind of have a wee bit of experience in lots of different departments. So I started in imaging, working with sort of characterizing cameras, and then I moved over to spectroscopy. And sort of the first project I was involved in was like a project improvement. So we would try and take the existing spectrograph lineups and the engineering department were developing improvements for the mechanisms to make them more reliable and more repeatable. Part of the my role in that was the data analysis part. So they're taking the repeatability results, collating all that data and trying to see trends or if there is an actual improvement and that sort of thing. But kind of as a physicist, you're the in-between from a lot of departments. So we would talk to software developers, a physicist kind of jack of all trades kind of thing where you're, you're really specialized as such, but you kind of know a little bit about everything and or a lot of things. And then you're trying to talk to software developers or engineers and the in-between person to try and do a little bit of that. And also a lot of problem solving. So can this thing be broken? How can it be broken? And if it does break, how do I fix it? It's really the main, what I spend most of my day doing. 
Yeah, very good. And how do you, your research during your PhD and your postdoc contribute to your your current role in R&D? Like what specific skills did you learn that could be transferred over? I mean, so I did an experimental sort of based PhD in postdoc and a lot of my work was in a lab and a lot of it is still in a lab. So we still have the same setup, you know, optical tables, optomechanics, things like that, mirrors, lenses. Especially, you know, in, in spectrographs, when you're developing a system or testing a system, you use a lot of the same sort of equipment, but on a broader aspect, there's problems to be solved and that sort of thing. Also, like if you're trying to work to deadlines and projects, you know, you're developing sort of, for, for example, as a postdoc, you know, you have a, an experiment coming up, there's a lot of planning involved in that and how do you implement it? And when things go wrong or how do you work to within certain restrictions, you have to sometimes know when things are good enough and not perfect. A lot of that carries over to industry where you might not have exactly what you need, but you still have to deliver on your objectives. And is there any other career opportunities within that sector that postdocs can explore other than, you know, R&D? Yeah, I mean, like specifically in Andor, like Andor, if you have a a physics or maths or engineering background, we hire like optical engineers and physicists kind of almost on an annual basis. We're always kind of recruiting, but specifically in Andor, there's software developers, engineers, mechanical engineers, product engineers, technicians, quality assessors, quality insurer, you know, people ensure the products are working and test them. It kind of like brought even more broadly, like I know people that have left academia to go into project management, data analysis, as software development, data analytics. Now, I think there's such a broad range of career options available to you. You can kind of almost pick whatever you want to, you know, within reason. Very good. Thank you, Mark. So uh, let, let's move on to Roy. Do you mind telling us a little bit about your academic background and your PhD research? Thank you, Philip. So I uh, studied geology and mining. This was back home in Nigeria. and decided to come do a master's in environmental science. So I did that for a bit, and after that, I felt, okay, but what's next? And decided to do a PhD, and uh, did a PhD in geology with a focus on reservoir characterization for CO2 storage monitoring at the University of Aberdeen. So it was uh, quite an exciting time. Fortunately, I was quite involved, and and I'll mention this because we'll talk about this later on. I was quite involved in society work, so I was um, vice president of society and I became eventually became president of two different societies, APG and NSS. You know, that gave me quite a bit of exposure with networking with people and meeting certain kinds of people within academia, but also within the industry. So I'll, I'll end it there, but we'll talk more later on. Okay, thank you. And I suppose, can you tell us a little bit about your journey from academia to your current role, which is Director of Sales at Tensor GEO? And yeah. what motivated that that career? One thing I would say is it hasn't been an easy journey, but it has been one that has been more or less intentional. And it's been intentional because, you know, coming here as, you know, as a foreigner, what you tend to see is we come here at, uh, most people come to do their master's at maybe a much older age and some at a younger age. I came when I was 25. Doing that and doing a PhD, I realized that people I was doing PhD with were quite younger than I was. And that meant that going into the industry, you know, you would start off at a certain level. And before you rise to the top, there's, there would be a lot of bureaucracies and promotions and all of that. And I felt, you know what, what do I really want in life? Do I want to be in a position where I am stuck on the drug of salary because salary is a drug? 
Do I want to be stuck there or do I want to suffer now? I, I say suffer because entrepreneurship is, is a bit of suffering. But do I want to pay the price now for a better future? And I, and I chose the latter. So at the end, tail end of my PhD, I had an opportunity to be involved in a startup company. One key thing I looked at was I had two options. Get into with this startup company and be paid £600 a month or... I had an option to get into an oil and gas um, company that was at the time going to pay me about 45 and um, roughly just going in as a graduate with, with a PhD. And, and I chose the uh, I chose the startup at 600. So some people might call me crazy, but I just looked at the opportunities at the time. And plus the fact that within the industry, there was always consistent cycles of layoffs, especially for people in geology, for people in G&G. And that, that happens every time. Every three, four years, there's always a massive layoff, and, and that's continued. And, and, and so I decided, you know, I, I was going to go into the startup space. And um, through the startup, I was able to get a fellowship. I was able to get through a lot of entrepreneurial training, added to my own personal experience of owning a company before I came here. And that exposed me to the environment. That exposed me to the business in the middle belt and, of course, to, to, to mentors because you need access to people who can be good business mentors and people who can lead you in the right path. So that was how I got involved with a startup company and did that for a year plus, decided, okay, I wanted to move on to something more niche and suited to my skills and I moved to Tenzo Geo. And, and that's how I started doing the technical sales. So because I've got knowledge in, in, in the technical side, it became very easy to incorporate that with my business acumen um, and, and, and sales acumen as well. And, and bring that as a holistic approach to the organization. Okay. How would you say your your technical expertise from your time in academia benefits you or contributes to your current role in sales? A lot. So if you're in business, you need to understand and you've got a product that you want to take to market. You need to understand the market you're taking it to, the companies. You need to understand their needs. You need to understand how to fit you know, have that perfect fit or that unique selling point that is a good match with the companies. So having the technical expertise enabled me to speak to technical people within the organization. So I would typically have to get buy-in from geophysicists, geologists, and being able to speak their language, being able to help them to understand what we're offering by way of passive seismic technology. But also you need to understand that, you know, passive seismic is not something that is really necessarily, uh, it's called interferometry. It's not something that is widely taught in the UK universities in the past. Now it is, it's picking up now. And, and so sometimes you have to go through that um, piece of educating people. And, and that's where it really helped me. So being able to educate the technical people, being able to convince them, but also being able to speak with them at their level and also being able to speak to higher ops. So having that entrepreneurial training as well helps me to speak the language with people who are at an executive levels because the way you speak with them at executive level differs from how you speak to technical people. And they just want to understand What's the impact? What's the value? What's the bet? How does it affect my bottom line? How does it promote the company? Looking at ESGs and, and, and other things and being able to communicate that is very important. Okay, thank you. On that topic, could you tell us a little bit about what Tensor GEO does? You mentioned about passive seismic technology. Can you can you talk a bit about that? And so so, so Tensor Geo offers we offer passive or micro seismic technology to the industry. 
one um, we've got two main technologies with a third one which is currently being developed actually we're in trial as we speak in the middle east so the first one we are able to delineate hydrocarbons using very low frequencies we're talking about between 0.1 to about 5 or 10 hertz and that helps you to identify the boundaries of um, either sweet spots small pools within your reservoir then we also have um, full wave location, which helps you to identify micro seismic events. So if you're doing any form of reservoir stimulation, so, such as enhanced oil recovery, or you're injecting CO2 into the subsurface, with FWL, we'll be able to sort of monitor that. Then we have the third one, which is Cuttlefish Carbon Guard. And we came up with that idea on the back end of COVID, because a lot of companies were um, either having to reinvent themselves and find something to keep them relevant or, or go bankrupt. And so we decided to to look for what will be relevant to serve the industry. And, and, and Cuttlefish Carbon Guard was quite perfect to serve the MMB, Monitoring Measurement and Verification Industry for CO2 storage. So we've gone through a validation routes where we've, we've done feasibility study on how we can combine both our technologies into one technology so combining the full wave and the low frequency seismic into one technology that can be applied in the um, co2 storage space and so we've gone through feasibility study we've gone through data analysis and, and now we're in the field trial so we're, we're currently trialing the technology as we speak in the middle east um which 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 is a very great opportunity so so that's what we at tenzo geo do we're trying to standardize interpretation of passive seismic because far too often within the industry you have different companies and different academics you know having different ways of interpreting passive seismic data what we want to do is to be able to standardize that and support academics but also support organizations in having a very clear cut and process on how to identify interpret um, seismic um, passive seismic data Okay, thank you. And lastly, just about career paths that academics can take, what sort of opportunities are available in that sector? Maybe even is there any opportunities for STEM academics outside of, say, geology? There's always, in fact, I would say now more than ever, there's more opportunities. I'm finding a lot of people who were either undergrads or did masters when I was in my PhD. I've now transitioned from geology into project management which mark sort of alluded to initially a lot of them have gone into data science so you find people are actually changing and, and reinventing themselves just to try and keep up with the current times there's renewables now so there's a lot of transferable skills if you're in the geotechnical space you can easily go into renewables checking out the structure and the integrity of of, of, of the base um, uh, that will be used for for a lot of these um, wind turbines so there's a lot of opportunities outside of gng i'm not discouraging people but Sometimes I keep saying this, um, I'm looking at the business model of some of the very big organizations. It's changing. It's changing because they would rather now have a very lean GNG department and subcontract most of the GNG to other countries where they can use the salary of one person and pay for almost 50 people and, and use that, those teams you know, to build models for them, to do all the, you know, the hard grind. And, and that means there's less opportunities, less and less opportunities for people who are just coming out. However, there's also an opportunity to go into an entrepreneurial space. If, if you can identify a gap, if you can see that um, there's an opportunity for you to, to fill that gap, speak with people, be careful who you speak to, because sometimes some people might kill your dreams, but be very intentional on choosing the right people to speak to who can encourage you. 
And, you know, there's opportunities to go into entrepreneurial routes. So there's a lot of consultants now who are actually even making it more than they were when they were employed in these big organizations. So I would say, you know, being able to step out your comfort zone and don't just think it's an easy ride, but it's a rewarding path if you would go down the entrepreneurial route. Thank you very much, Roy. Next up, we'll move on to Rebecca. I don't know how you follow um, that. <laughs> <laughs> Rebecca, if you don't mind introducing yourself, your academic background and your degrees and your path. Yep. Okay. I feel like my path to here has been kind of like a Sunday drive. You just, <laughs> I don't know where you're going to go, but you just end up somewhere. I studied mechanical and manufacturing engineering, did the MEng pathway sandwich course. And I think a little, like the, what I did for my placement year is probably a little of an insight as to the way my mind is wired. And that back in the, in the old days, I don't know if they, they still did or not, but uh, professional studies was taught first and second year. And one of the consistent elements in professional studies was finance. I just couldn't get my head around kind of, it didn't do well in that aspect. I loved the law part, but the the kind of the finance side, I think I just didn't enjoy it. I never enjoyed maths. I loved ad maths, never enjoyed maths. Like I don't really care for fractions and percentages, give me calculus. But uh, I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to spend a year in first derivatives and learn investment banking because clearly this is a consistent topic that's going to come up. It didn't come up again after after the second year and that entire year of investment banking I realized that's definitely not a career choice I want to make but at least I I tried it after my degree I then chose to do a PhD I always knew I wanted to do a PhD I didn't know why I kind of just love learning the opportunity to explore new ground I guess what I wanted to do in I was never quite clear on until my final year and polymers was a like a revolution to me it's just it completely changed my mindset on mechanical engineering because to be quite honest for a good at least the first two years I did not enjoy mechanical engineering <laughs> I remember going to the advisor uh, advisor studies and saying I don't know what I'm doing here can you please help me and he said well um it was yeah he, he helped me anyway and pointed me in the direction of speaking to PhD demonstrators who kind of help you out in your tutorials and I was asking them, you know, what did they do? Trying to find someone to inspire me. And I came across a certain person who, uh, Pamela Walsh, <laughs> shout out to her. She had created bone from seaweed. I just remember thinking, wow, I bet you did that bio- bioengineering at s- somewhere else. No, no, I did the degree you're doing. And that encouraged me to stay on because what was coming in the third and fourth year was going to be amazing. And definitely polymers changed my changed my life really to be honest professor tony McNally was a fantastic lecture so that was the area i wanted to do my phd in and it was four years of utter chaos that's <laughs> the only way i can describe a phd chaos i think the supervisors uh, are hit and miss and i think i missed on my one but it's definitely something that teaches you how to self-assemble essentially you've got deadlines but they're like four years or three years down the line um and this is before differentiation was a, a big thing, really. Or you, you know, you had each year you had a review. I didn't have that whenever I was doing it. So it's definitely a, a lesson in structure, self-discipline. I'm the kind of person that I'll use a hundred words when ten words will do, even in writing. It's kind of trying to condense all that to make a succinct point. Once I'd finished my PhD, I realized I don't want to do anything to do with polymers ever again, <laughs> despite loving it. I was like, done, no more, please. But I didn't know what I wanted to do. 
I knew that as a graduate mechanical and manufacturing engineer, most of the jobs were going to be in fluid dynamics, thermodynamics, engines, combustion engines, that kind of that area, which never really interested me. Don't get me wrong. Love driving a car. Just not really love it, interested in the, the ranking cycle. I went to nature jobs. Like I thought, I think big here, nature jobs, typed in mechanical engineering. I think it was, I think it, I wanted, still wanted to do research. I think it did postdoc. And thinking I was going to get results for Australia, Croatia, America, Sierra Leone, I don't know, the different places, anywhere. And it came up, the first result was Queen's University, Belfast, Lisbon Road. I was like, kidding, like, just discarded that completely. I was like looking at the rest and none of them were all that interesting. So I was like, okay, well, what's this Queen's one? And it was in School of Pharmacy, looking at trying to create a new manufacturing process for the manufacture of a medical device. I was like, damn it, that sounds awesome. Medical device, loved the medical area as well. So biotissue engineering as part of the mechanical manufacturing degree was a big, I loved that. So third and fourth year were great for me because that was when I got my teeth into non-first principle stuff. First principle is great and all, but I wanted to like get some end results, if you know what I mean, some kind of higher TR level value and loved that. That that was that was fantastic two, two years in, in school of pharmacy. We did, I learned a lot. I learned that I was an engineer, not a scientist as well. I always thought the kind of science engineering, the same. No, they're not. They're really not. So definitely an engineer. Made some great friends. The two years came to an end. And because I had been successful, there was a contract with a transdermal manufacturing company in Germany. And they had their own mechanical engineers. So it was a case of, okay, we want to keep you on. Would you like to learn pipetting and uh, kind of proper pharmaceutical techniques? No. No, I'm not into the micro tiny stuff. I like My PhD was in nanotechnology, but I'd rather get a big bag of pellets and throw it into a grinder and kind of, you know, get my extruded polymers out of that. I looked elsewhere and there was a internal job through the internal Queen's portal. Whenever you're coming to an end, it will tell you you're coming to an end of a, of a term and, you know, jobs coming up. And there was one for a thing called NIAS, which is the Northern Ireland Advanced Technology, oh no, sorry, Northern Ireland Advanced Composites and Engineering Centre. And it was as a core researcher, which is something new that they were trying with Queen's. So NIAS, I've always likened it to a gym in a sense, but instead of getting paying membership to get access to equipment, you pay membership to get access to researchers. And that's from both University of Ulster and from Queen's. Within that role, you then get exposed to a variety of different companies and industries. You have collaboration because that's the main point of NIAS. The core researcher element being new meant that you weren't on a project. So usually with NIAS, you'd be hired to be put onto a particular project doing with these things with these companies. Core researcher meant I had to go out, didn't have to, I chose to go out and speak to the industry and speak to find, try and find problems whilst waiting for, for projects to be created and brought my way. I was just speaking to them and trying to find out what they were doing interesting building up reports of the companies finding commonalities in, in their issues and then bringing that to the supervisor i guess uh, my boss to explain what a, what a project could be and then developing the project and applying for the funding getting the funding and starting it quite a few projects and they're really so diverse very very interesting time but i came to an end of i guess i was starting to feel the itch of moving and then I'd got on so well with one of the companies that they wanted to hire me as they had a research and development of their company. And I was in civil engineering. I was like, all right, I'll give that a go. It's in that role, kind of looking through their business plan, 
and realized they need to have a strategic plan. So they didn't have a vision of, they had a, they had a vision of like in 30 years time, this is where I want to be, but no idea of like, how are we going to get there? And particularly through R&D, if that's where he wants to expand. Um, within that role develops um, kind of a, an expanded an area that already existed, but in a small way. So there, uh, it was structural health monitoring and they had used sensors, three queens actually, um, sensors to install into bridges and pillars and concrete columns and so on to uh, determine any kind of structural anomalies. Um, this was a big area. I, I could see that was a big area. I wanted to expand it and grow it. So I explored different sensor technologies out there and realized I know nothing about sensor technologies. Me being me, it was like, right, well, the, obviously what I'm gonna do is do a master's in IoT. That's what prompted me. I'd always been interested in get mom calls me the gadget queen. Always an interest in technology. I've always wanted to, one of my PhD, when I was looking at for, for PhDs, I wanted to do one with a gentleman called Trevor Robinson in, a, in with, with Python programming, essentially. And I had a choice between that then and a polymer one. It's like, ooh, I'll go for polymers. And I never got to do programming. So kind of a self-learning programming. So this was an opportunity to, to, to get finally get on this train, um, technology train. I loved it. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. It was, it was tough now doing a part-time master's with a full-time job that was about 12 hours a day. It was a tough job. <laughs> Somehow I was able to fit it in for the first year. And then I left that job and moved to Queens again. So I always felt the pull back to Queens because I enjoy research. I, I just, I love research. I love learning. In that role, um, I was a professional rather than academic employee. I was working in the NITC, which is the Northern Ireland Technology Centre. My, my role within it was digital manufacturing. Our, yeah, digital manufacturing engineer, just rules off the tongue. Uh, and my role there was to connect to the CNC machines, try and get, try and establish a connection, a remote connection, then get data off it, analyze data and provide feedback. But it ended up being a lot more than that because I got really sucked into the detail. <laughs> so I then started to use that as a, my dissertation and trying to find ways of being able to predict and forecast uh, tool failures and explore the area and field of data analysis. It also gave me a great excuse to learn different types of programming. I was totally on board with that. And then that was about two and a half years of oh, such great fun, to be honest, been exposed to robots, cobots, machines, different industries as well. Cause they, again, with that collaborative aspect, you know, getting to go on site to their factories and see their machines. Came to, I'd finished all my work packages in, my, in the project, which had been extended another six, seven months. I was like, what am I gonna do for that time? Which at the same time, my friend who was a, it was a, started off as a business relationship within the previous job and it, we got on so well, we just became friends. He was talking about a product that he had developed three, four years prior, four years prior with a, uh, a consortium in Caldivada Industries. They had won a, a, a competition, a call, a funded call to develop something open source to help the public sector. Lintel was the outcome of that and he had said it's kind of it we did well and we got projects consistently and then kind of COVID happened and things slowed down and everyone that was involved in Lintel had their own jobs things got busy there kind of it just lay dormant for a while but I'm thinking of buying everybody out of the because they registered the company in 2018 even though the project started 2016, ended 2018, was successful. They registered a company thinking, we'll do something with this and said, um, I'm going to buy everybody out of, this, out of their shares and I'm going to try and make something of this. 
I need a CEO. I like the cut of your jib. Would you like to be the CEO? And I was like, I'll give that a go. And that's, I was appointed in November. Uh, and here I am <laughs> wondering what, what happened. <laughs> so I'm CEO of a, a startup that is unfortunately a uh, past five years. So I didn't realize this when I started that once you're past five years as a startup, it's much harder to get funding. So all they can invest in I and Entertain Ireland, all the accelerators and the uh, the catalysts and the hubs and all they kind of help grow your business funding is um, as long as you're less than five years old, you can avail of all this money. I'm relying on my ability to build up rapport with companies and sell the dream <laughs> to get a- income in, which is working. It's working, but it's a lot of R&D in it because the, the product has kind of been dormant for a while. Something with tech, you have to keep it's developing is, is if you're not actively developing something, you're maintaining something and that hadn't really been happening. So there is R&D in it. And I've just applied for an Innovate UK call for quite a lot of money to try and grow the business and employ some some people and yeah, get get some get stuck into building this. But in the meantime, doing consulting on the side and kind of approaching companies to avail of my previous experiences, which is kind of broad. And yeah, so that's that's where I am. And here I am. Okay, thank you. Um, yeah, as you said, it's quite a quite a diverse range of careers you've taken. That's culminated in being CEO of this startup, Lintol. Do you mind telling us a bit about what what the product Lintol offers is, and then what inspired you to take on such a, a leadership role, which is quite different from your previous roles? Mm. So Lintol is uh, a data validation pipeline. That's the kind of the official title, which essentially is something that takes in data does validation of it and validation can be anything from the cleaning the processing the analysis and then spits it out somewhere and that could be as a final product so a final report or the the data that you had ingested having been cleaned um, or it can be a uh, kind of spit out into another database for more actions to be um, applied to it it's it was originally developed for public sector because there is an awareness of public sector personnel having a lack of technical know-how. You know, that's not what they train to do and so on. So a lot of people don't know how to handle data. And there is reams of, of data that when you think, if anyone has done anything with data ever, there's always going to be mistakes and columns. There's going to be null values. There's going to be, if it's natural language processing, then there's going to be spelling mistakes. If it's semi-structured data, they're going to be in forms. For example, someone has written a, a date in a different format. So it could be American format versus the UK format. So having the month, the day, the year, rather than the day, the month, the year, there's gonna be changes in names. So it could be John P. Kirkpatrick. So then it'll be JP Kirkpatrick. And then it'll be John pa- John Patrick Kirkpatrick. Yeah, so, and it's all the same person, but the data will say, oh, these three are different. These are three different people, you know? So it's, there's a lot of cleansing and data manipulation as it were, before it even gets to the proper data manipulation, like the, the proper analysis stage. So that's that was the inspiration for developing Lintol. And it had done well working with diverse government sectors and, and departments. But whenever I came on board, I could see that, you know, having from, from my experience, my manufacturing for one has so much data coming out of it. And a lot of time there is, you need to be able to clean it properly because sensors don't work 100% all the time or the, the machines don't work 100% all the time, there's going to be gaps in times, you know, and having to identify 
the null values that they, that exists. That could be that could be information that's important to you, or it could just be uh, it's fine. We don't we know that sometimes this happens. I'm now trying to research and uh, or develop the product to uh, so that's batch based. So you have your data, you upload it, and the the product is meant to be it's upload the data, click a button, and out comes the data at the other end. That that button that you press is something that we would develop it's, uh, in Python, a, 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 just a processor that does whatever you need it to do. But I'm trying to now develop streaming, so live real-time data, so that whenever, again, I think of manufacturing, you get an idea of whenever there's an anomaly that happens, so a tool fractures in the machine, letting you know immediately that there's a tool fracture and that's going to have this impact on these values. It could be the likes of if you're applying deep learning networks um, or other kind of neural networks or uh, machine learning algorithms to something that's live, being able to monitor kind of uh, uh, drift, model drift, so rampart detection, basically, uh, that kind of idea, uh, to, just to keep giving you that feedback. It's meant to be a live thing. The data validation pipeline is not meant to be a, the end result. It is something that just keeps the data flowing. The inspiration to become CEO was, it's, uh, <laughs> I never turned down an opportunity. <laughs> That's pretty much it. Never turned down an opportunity. Give it a go. You never know what might happen. I think one thing that the PhD taught me was be comfortable being uncomfortable, learn, expand, develop opportunities yourself, get the, the, get the experience to, to move forward. Um, I never wanted to be in one particular path. I never wanted to, as just before this started, I was saying about my parents, but, you know, they were a generation where you know, my mom's a teacher and became principal. And my dad is a particular occupation or a musician, you know, or something. It's, it's, that's their, that is their job. And that was what they chose to do. That is their career. I could never get my head around, like, what do I want to be stuck in for the next 50 years? I don't know. And I would think, and that's how I feel, it'd be, I'd be stuck in it. You know, I don't want to be pigeonholed. I want to try everything and see, throw mud at the wall and see what sticks. But the one thing that is consistent about everything that I have done has been that it's been industry-facing. Um, my PhD was not industry-funded, but it was... I think I had just chosen it to be kind of what's applicable to industry because some of the things that I could have done within my PhD would have given me brilliant results, but there's no point because no one is going to do it. No one is going to put a really expensive material into something to make it better whenever a low cost alternative with slightly, le slightly less good <laughs> um, results are the outcome. You know, it's, it's what's practical. So I love industry facing anything really speaking to people finding problems and helping academia tended to go too slowly for me industry is the way forward i i can be critical so you're not doing it right so if i'm going to be critical of somebody else i might as well just be the person doing it in the first place and that's probably why i'm here it's like i can I eat some humble pie <laughs> i am now in i'm uh now throwing stones at myself in a glass house so yes Okay, thank you very much. Thank you, guys. I think we'll move on to um, the next section, which is a sort of panel question to all three of you. For the panelists, I suppose that would be Roy and Rebecca, who've explored entrepreneurship or started their own ventures. What were the key factors that motivated you to take that path? And was there any challenges or uncertainties of starting a business that you didn't expect? Or how did you navigate those? If we start with Roy. 
Yeah, thank you. I think um, what motivated me was the fact that, uh, first of all, I grew up with a dad who was a businessman. He was a lawyer, but he was a businessman. And, and my mom was a doctor. So I kind of had, you know, this grounding of, you know, having an academic parent and one who was also a business and into business. And, you know, that always motivated me. So before I came to do my master's, I I was uh, I had my own personal small business where I was selling laptops with all the softwares installed in them. And um, I was very intentional about who I sold to. If you couldn't give me cash or a check, I'm not selling to you. I'm not even speaking to you. Um, so I defined my target market very early on. And that was when I understood the power of defining your target market, because that saves you time, energy, effort, and, and speaking to the wrong people. Because uh, far too often you find that when you go into business, the potential of speaking to, you know, wasting your energy and time speaking to wrong people is very, very high. So you need to be very intentional on how you define your, your, your target markets. So coming into the UK and, and seeing, you know, the, the whole academic space, but also looking at the industry as well and thinking about my future, I felt actually, where do I want to be in the next um, 10, 15 years from now? Do I still want to be dependent on a, on a salary or do I want to be, you know, as high up within an organization and still have the opportunity to do, you know, all the things I love to do, which is very key. And, and so for me, going into a startup company, number one, gave me the opportunity to still do other things. So I don't just work for Tenzo Jill. I have my own company as well. And within my company, I build relationships with um, other technology providers and other startup companies that are in the stage of going into markets. I go through evaluating their business model, their market strategy, and um, I go ahead to use my networks to create opportunities to break into the markets. I'm currently negotiating for one of the companies that I consult with. I'm currently negotiating lease agreements, licensing agreements for its products that is just coming into market. So I've been watching and monitoring, you know, their, their technology advancements from TRL 4, 5, 6, 7, 8 with all the trials and everything. And now they are going commercial. So that gives me an opportunity to take this product to the market, but also be embedded in the cost structure and also have shares and, and other things that will um, have the potential to make you financially buoyant in the next couple of years. And so that was kind of like my motivating factor, if I, if I may put it that way, that, you know, I, I didn't want to be addicted to just receiving, a, you know, in, in, in Aberdeen here, you find people receiving fat paychecks, but that's just it. You're almost restricted on what you can do because you've literally signed your life to even volunteer for organizations. So I volunteer um, at, at an organization called AFBI, um, Association for Black and Ethnic Minority Engineers in the UK. And I was just recently made a co-chair, but I've been volunteering this organization since 2014. I've been involved in um, a lot of the activities. For me, I find fulfillment being involved in this organization. You know, having a, if I was working for a corporate organization full time, it would have almost hindered my ability to volunteer for, for this organization and would have made it very difficult. You know, so I needed that freedom as well. Um, so that's another motivating factor, freedom. If your target as an academic 
or if you want to transition and you're thinking of, I mean, there's freedom in academic, don't get me wrong, because I, I, I don't think they put, I mean, the pressures are usually with deadlines of publication or deadlines with project that has been either sponsored by, by the industry. But in most cases, you have freedom. Yeah. I'm, I'm talking about financial freedom as well. So freedom to do what you love to do, but also having that financial freedom as well. Um, it takes time. It takes effort. It takes a lot of investment. But if that's, if that's your end goal, then I would say take the risks. Now, challenges, you would face them. In, in fact, you would face things that you don't expect. And Rebecca said something. After five years, you don't necessarily get the opportunities to apply for certain type of funding. And that's true. And that's because after five years of being a startup, you're expected to get on with the business and stop looking for funds. You're expected to either have a product and start going to market. And um, if you have a product and you go to market, then it's easy to go raise equity funds. But if you don't have that and you're still looking for, you know, 20K here, 50K here and all of that, it becomes a challenge. Um, if you have board, if you have a board within your, within your startup, still kick you in the butt and say, what are you doing? You need to be taking this business forward and, and stop looking for hand-me-downs. It's different when you're already in that growth phase, you know, where you're selling, you're making tractions, you're making inroads, and now you need a growth fund to either expand your team or you need a fund to expand your territories, the market territories, then that's different. Then you start getting access to different types of funding. But I would tell you, it, it, it's not like it gets easier, but your resilience builds through it. So you're able to handle most of the challenges that will come your way because you've built, you, you, you already have this resilience. You, you, you already have this, I, I always say leadership attributes because you're wearing multiple hats. So you learn very quickly how to do so many things. You don't like finance, tough. You need to understand finance. You, you need to understand strategy. You need to understand policies. You need to understand health and safety. You need to understand so many things, administrative work. You know, you're almost a jack of all trades when, when, when you're in a startup company. But that makes you to become a very wholesome person and a, and a wholesome individual. Yeah. So, so ultimately, yeah, if, if you want to jump into it, I would say look for the right people. There are mentors everywhere. Universities provide mentorship schemes for people who want to go into entrepreneurship. And there's many multiple organizations that, that are willing to help. Thank you. Rebecca, do you have anything to add? In a very university challenge like way, and um, could you repeat the question, please? <laughs> <laughs> so, for for those who've explored sort of entrepreneurship, are there were there what key factors sort of motivated you to take that path, and were there any challenges, you know, unexpected obstacles? Yes. Okay. The way? Yes, I think it's already been alluded to, um, but I didn't want to be a career postdoc. And I think for two reasons. One, they were starting to really crack down on career postdocs <laughs> in Queens anyway. And two, basically the salary aspect, if I was going to go out there, if I was going to be earning a salary and not doing something myself, then I'd would rather not be stuck on a grade that increases slowly year on year, where there is no way of getting any kind of bonus or reward for good work, which kept getting... I mean, my bosses were frustrated that they couldn't reward their team for doing excellent work. You just had to wait for the next grade to open up to apply for a job, which is rare. And you then end up applying for a job that you don't really want, perhaps. <laughs> you just need, because your life has progressed, you know, and you've got a house now. And, you know, you feel like, why am I still stuck on this whenever all my friends are out and, you know, 
So there is that was that was a reason. I'm not gonna lie. So the financial aspect, the realization that I'll, I'll possibly end up in a job that I'm not sure I want to particularly do, and I'm very passionate about. The pressure for publication, which I like to publish, I, I love that, but I like to be published when I'm ready to publish. <laughs> you know, and that's one of the problems. Snip and the ref. It's it's just it gets exhausting whenever I almost feel like it nullifies or kind of numbs the the impact of your research whenever you're trying to just publish and you're just doing slight, slightly more novel things, slightly different things. And then, yeah, I just I knew I could see the career ahead of me and the frustrations all that would have brought. So I changed it for different frustrations <laughs> that in an area that I had ignorance is bliss. So let's learn what these frustrations are. And I know that it was a crazy decision to do what I did, to move from a public sector job with a steady income, with the prospect with AMIC coming up, which is a Belfast regional deal, having a possibly permanent role, all the comforts, your pension, your maternity leave and all that jazz, to then go into the complete unknown with a rubbish salary that um, you're, you're responsible for getting more money into your own pocket, you know, and and as uh, Roy was saying, you know, it's yes, after five years, you're meant to have a product because you're not meant to be kind of still taking hand-me-outs and so on. But as a product that has been five years old, that had been worked on less than part-time, <laughs> you know, it's five years old by company's house registration. The reality is about maybe two years worth of startup has gone into it. So I'm kind of stuck here. with. So that's that's a challenge. It's stuck here with a product that is actually a startup product. I need acceleration and kind of hub and catalyst and so on, but I'm not eligible because I'm five years old now. Would that have changed my mind whenever I was being offered this crazy, crazy role? No, because <laughs> I embrace challenges. I, I, I like to, yeah, I just like to, I like to try new things and to see if I can do it. And the, the second challenge was that I knew I was going to go into this pregnant. <laughs> so I'm currently 20 weeks pregnant. And that's, that's scary because it's my first for start, but also, I'm, I'm trying to build a business and then I'm going to have to go off. I'm not going to, I'm not going to have the luxury of a lovely six months full, full-time pay. You know, it's going to be, if I can get to six weeks, you know, <laughs> um, that's your stat. Um, but I'll be working in between, you know, if I can, I don't know, but it's all my friends are going, you are mad. You're absolutely mad doing this and all the work you're having already, like pulling all nighters, trying to get applications out and so on. Whilst you're pregnant, you know, so these, there are stresses everywhere, but I thrive in that environment. I do, I, I thrive under pressure and new challenges. And I think that was one of the reasons why I went into entrepreneurship. Jobs that I moved into never happened fast enough because I, I like to keep doing stuff. The idea of having an afternoon off, like, come on, we can get more done. Let's do stuff, it's crazy, but that's me. And yeah, I think the person who offered me the CEO role kind of knew that I would be, I'm, de- I'm very determined, I'm very determined. I am self-propelling in that respect. You know, I don't need any kind of fuel to to, to to move, but also that I have experience speaking to people, building up relationships. I understand there's something about, I think my I think the degree really helped because there is that element of, of just the first principles and fundamental theories are everywhere. You know, everything is built on first principles and understanding context. You may not understand the product, understanding the context to be able to sell the dream to be able to get the money in to build the product for the people as ceo as opposed to cto or coo you know my role is to organize people 
I'm on my own right now. I know what I need to do. I need to get it done to get people in to then develop the thing to make the dream happen. I know what key skills I need. I don't know how I know. I just know what key skills I need. And it's from the years of experience of just, <laughs> I don't know, watching incompetent people and watching competent people and kind of just learning. So how I got here, my dad always told me I was either going to be a professor or a CEO. And he was right. <laughs> for now, I don't know what the future holds, but for now he's right. Yeah, so that's just my mind, the way my mind works. Leadership roles, first president of ISDNI. Because when I came home from, I was in Japan for a summer, working in Olympus Corporation on a medical de- a medical device again. On a, basically, I was modeling the the cooling through a the thermal jacket of an endoscope whilst it's in the body. Because at that time, anyway, endoscopes went into the body. You had to take it out to clean it, cool it down, and put it back in. So anytime you take something out of the body and put it back in again, you've got your risk of infection. Definitely out there, it cemented my desire to, to code because I was using Scilab, which is the free version of MATLAB. And uh, I loved it. And research loved it but being out there coming back and realizing that here in northern ireland there was no local committee so when people were coming over there was no one to welcome them the, the rent the body essentially as this, as local committees were there was none here and that i was like what that's shocking so basically like i'm going to do something about that and um basically local committee or the british council agreed and we got a group of people together and created the local committee uh, president for two years until I realized <laughs> it's like I want I've got my studies coming up I can't I can't handle everything all at once and then pass the the, uh, the mantle on but um, certainly that experience made me realize there's a lot to learn about management and leadership and it's more about yourself. Thank you very much and in regards to transitioning outside of you know your academic background to a new field or, or industry was there any sort of strategies or resources any of you found helpful in acquiring the 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 skills necessary or did you just sort of throw yourselves into it shall we start with uh, mark uh yeah well i guess i kind of sidestepped in it, into it a wee bit because you know as a a researcher in physics i, I was a, a user of all these android cameras so it was already a a company that was quite well known to me so like one of the the biggest things like if you if you're deciding to think about changing fields is like talk to people in the industry try if you know people try and network with them and try and get an idea of what you know specifically in industry like what your role would be and then maybe that makes you feel a bit more comfortable like i was very anxious whenever i even when i started to think about wanting to leave you know i wasn't sure what i was going to do or how i could do it but i think you know through networking and friends kind of you get a wee bit of more reassurance that you're kind of able to make that transition in the first place. Yeah, okay. I suppose a lot of people in academia will feel sort of pigeonholed to a very specific field or a field within a field sometimes of their expertise. Is there any advice you guys would give to those people who are sort of looking to break free from that pigeonholed mindset and to explore sort of new opportunities? I would say, um, first, first of all, upskilling. Uh, but for you to upskill, you need to know what you want. Um, and so this comes with some brutal honesty. You, you need to actually sit down. I, I, I always advise this to, to my mentees. Make a plan. Five-year plan, 10-year plan, whatever the case is. What do you want? And this is where brutal honesty comes to play. Once you are able to articulate precisely what you want, then you now go and, and start articulating 
what do I need to get to where I want to be? And and you need to now start thinking about either upskilling, if if maybe what I find is a lot of times uh, people who are do postdocs, I always found it weird when I was doing my PhD. And sometimes you go to the postdoc offices and they're always so serious. They don't want to talk. They don't want to say anything. It's like you're disturbing me. And I'm thinking to myself, come on, guys, let's have a chat, opportunity to network. Let's get to know each other better. So I felt like I was an outlier because I was always, hey, what, what are we doing? And everyone was like, leave me alone. I just want to focus on this and not talk to anybody. So if, if that's what you want in life, then that, 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 that's perfectly fine. But, but, but for you to be here and attending this talk, I believe it's because you want to do more. And if you want to do more, then, you know, you need to be able to step outside your comfort zone. Um, far too often, um, people are scared. Uh, I will tell you, the reason why people will not take that leap of faith to do something extraordinary or something that they've always wanted to do is because of fear, period. Um, if you're able to overcome that fear and step outside your comfort zone, what you would find is actually there's nothing to fear. You know, you're not going to get... Yes, you might get snowed under with work and all of that, but you will come out head above waters. Eventually, you will come out. And, and so my advice will be upscale, be brutally honest to yourself, make a plan and, and find a pathway that would take you to where you need to be and upscale if you need to. And, and upscaling can be just attending free courses, just a simple free course, because at the end of the day, um, when you upscale, it's the application that makes a difference. Um, you can upskill, but not apply it in, in, in any part or any area of your life, you, you know. So think about the application as well. How can you apply this to take you to where you want to be? Okay, thank you. Rebecca or Mark, do you have anything uh, to add about the, the pigeonhole mindset and how one may break free from that? I think I resonated with what Roy said about the uh, the fear aspect. Mm. Um, I've no, I, I, Two things, I will not, I'll do a, a double negative here, so warning. Basically, I do not do something because of fear or laziness. So if I don't want to do that because uh, I can be bothered. It got, it's going to need done. It's going to end up needing done at a time when you really don't have the time to do the thing. So don't not do something because of laziness. But I also don't not do something because of fear, because fear is only going to hold you back. You know, and what's the worst that can happen? Here I am, CEO, if I can't do this, I'm going to be more annoyed at me. It's not like I'm not a surgeon. I'm not a neurosurgeon or a cardiothoracic surgeon. You know, it's it's a it's 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 just a job. Your degrees, you're doing PhDs. You're invaluable. Your minds are invaluable to society, to private sector, to public sector. You will get a job somewhere, and if you don't like it, you can get a different job somewhere else. I that's what I have done, and I haven't disliked any of the jobs. Failure is only feedback. You know, it's like, okay, well, I didn't like that. Okay, now I know that I don't like that. And I've learned something about myself. For anyone who's aware of Myers-Briggs personality tests, it's quite an interesting thing to do. Um, I'm an, I am an INTJ, so it's quite unusual for a female to be an INTJ. I take pride in that. But it's, I'm the architect, and I'll sit there and I'll think, and I'll think, and I'll think things through, and then I'll just do something, you know. I think that's where the the knowing, the, the judging aspect, I'm a judger. You know, I can just go, yeah, that's the right decision. Let's do that. You know, failure is feedback. Well, that didn't work. Oh, well, think about that a bit more next time. Just just do it, you know. Um, with regards to sidestepping, 
Orthogar is progressing in your career or choosing something outside of what you're doing. What is it that you like to do? Do you like to learn? Do you, are you interested in tech? You know, is there's, it's specifically project management is a quite a common one for engineers in general because the way their minds work, you know, they like structure and they like, they can see the, the risk mitigations of certain decisions that are going to be made. And again, going back to first principles, well, that just won't work because it's just defies physics. Um, so I think, think about yourself and what you like to do and what you, you're, you're good at and find a job that reflects that. It doesn't have to be in the area of your degree. It can be anywhere. There's so many jobs out there, you know, um, and do it for a while and move on. Don't feel shame. Because when you leave a job, they'll forget you. It's okay. <laughs> the advice I have. <laughs> okay. Mark, do you have anything to add before we move on? Well, I just echo the point. Like, mm. as long as you do something with intention and you, if you're upskilling, like Roy says, make sure it's good to have an application to, or something to apply that to. Like, as long as you have an idea of where you want to go, you can try something. If it doesn't work out, you know, you can still hopefully end up heading in the same direction i think i would say there though that it's again with the both of you have said know where you want to go i've never had a five-year or a 10-year plan because i can't i don't want one <laughs> i guess that's mainly it i can't imagine i guess i i i live the um, agile project management style you know i run in sprints um even though i don't sprint that well but um it's it's I know the upskilling aspect, the, the masters in IoT, go hard or go home, basically was, was my mentality on that one. But I knew I kind of wanted to be in tech. I was interested in that. I really, it really excited me and I hadn't felt that excitement since um, I discovered polymers in my undergrad. So I knew it was something I wanted to do. And then I kind of just went from there. So upskilling doesn't have to be, where do you see yourself and what do you want to do? Uh, or uh, where do you, in, in five years time, or where do you want to go? It's what do you like? How can you then gain more experience in what you like and be better at what you like to be more effective and more efficient and hireable and confident? And confidence can get you anywhere. <laughs> confidence is the key to success, which has taken me a long time to learn, but absolutely upskilling something you like to do because you'll do well at it as well. Yeah, thank you. And I suppose, Roy, you touched on this point previously, but continuous sort of learning and professional development how would how important is that in you know successfully navigating career transitions and are there any sort of specific resources strategies that you guys would recommend to people looking to broaden their their knowledge base let's say in, in preparation for a, a potential transition if i may just touch on it a little bit so when at the time when I made um, the decision to stick with the startup company and get involved, um, there was only one thing I, I knew I had, and that was the confidence. Um, so Rebecca said confidence can take you anywhere. I remember pitching at a competition, and um, um, which I won, which we won, and, 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 and they said, oh, these guys are believable. Um, and their confidence exhumes uh, the, the atmosphere. So, so, so you could actually even be a bullshit artist, um, but you know the confidence with which you speak will convince people because entrepreneurship is about people. It's about convincing people. You know, you've got a product and you want people to 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 buy that product. Um, and so, being able to bring the two together and merge them, you you need to have some form of influence. Um, 
in convincing people. And, and confidence is one of the things. Now, um, <clears throat> what I found was um, having a mentor really did help me. Um, I, I had, so when, when I got on the um, Unlocking Ambition Enterprise Fellowship, I, I had a mentor who um, had taken a, a company public before. So he had certain skill sets, which I, I, I believe I learned a lot. So he, he taught me some very brutal business skills. When I say brutal, I mean things that might not be mentioned when you are in, uh, in a classroom or you know, even in business school. Some very, I wouldn't say shrewd, um, but some very relevant skills that you need, especially when going into negotiation. Because what you find is um, you negotiate a lot. When If you're an entrepreneur, half your life is, is, is based on negotiating. You're negotiating for people to come in. You're negotiating for the products to be built. You're negotiating for the supply chain. You're negotiating for everything essentially. So um, I, I think, you know, getting a mentor is, is very key um, and, and being able to communicate with, with them um, openly is, is also very key. And in, in terms of, you know, that continuous professional development, you need to identify areas that you need to work on. Um, and, and, and so for me, there were a lot of areas that, you know, I, even after going through the training, I needed to try and understand business models. Um, because if I wanted to deal with multiple organizations um, who had different types of technologies to take them to market, I needed to understand the different types of business models that have succeeded and failed and why. Because, you know, the fact that a business model has worked in a certain um, market or a certain country doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work the same way in your country. So you need to be able to understand the whys, the pros, the cons, and, and be able to put everything together. And so that helped me. So, so, so I went on a journey where I was just, I've been studying business models. I've been Coca-Cola to Lidl to, you know, little companies. There's, there's no business model I, I, I don't study. And I do that in my past time, you know. I, I listen to podcasts. Um, I listen to Tony Robbins. I, I listen to a lot of, you know, these entrepreneurial companies that, that speak about, you know, what took them from where they are to where they want to be. And Shazam was one of them that I, I listened to. Apparently Shazam was here before the iTunes, but nobody knew about Shazam. We didn't know anything about Shazam. It took 20 years for them to become a billion dollar company, evaluated as a billion dollar company. But nobody knew about that. We only knew Shazam what, a couple of years ago, but they've been there since, you know, before the iTunes. So, so, so it's trying to understand you know, business models. And for me, that's key. So that, that, that's what I needed. Um, so, so essentially, if you don't know what you need, speak to people. Speak to people. And, and people can actually help you to um, tease out. I, I found that the coach, having a coach is valuable. I, I, I never understood it. I'm, I'm in, originally a Nigerian. We don't go to coaches. We'll go to our church pastors or our imams or our religious leaders for guidance. Never, never to a coach. Um, but I realized when I had a session with a coach, the coach did not give me the answer, but she helped me to navigate through the answer that was within me. It's something that I wouldn't have been able to do by myself. You know, so I think it's very important that, um, you know, you, because you need it. There are times when you're an entrepreneur and you're going into business, trust me, depression, you know your runway. I, I know what the runway of the company is. And I'm there thinking, oh, God, this company canceled, that company canceled, or budgets have been deferred. 
the budgets have been deferred. We're not going to get any contract in this. I had to change strategy. You have to think on your feet. Um, initially, we were focused on the UKCS, you know, and I was speaking to companies every week, man. And it just felt like the regulations were changing. People were seeing oil and gas as bad and dirty. Everything was changing. I'm like, you know what? To hell with this. I'm changing markets. And I changed strategy. And I started going outside, Middle East, Australia. And I've had more success there than I've had in the UK. So changing strategy. Don't be scared to, to be agile. Don't be scared to knock on doors. Don't be scared to take that first step. Because in that first step lies your, your, your answer. The, the project we're currently doing, it took me a year and three months of conversations, presentations, negotiations, five months legal negotiations where you go to bed and you're thinking, God, this is not going to happen. Like the, the lawyers hate me. Oh God, you would give yourself excuses why it's not going to work, you know, but you just need to stand strong, have that faith and believe that, you know what, you're doing the right thing and it's for the right course and it will come through. Thank you. Thank you, Roy. Rebecca or Mark, do you have anything to add in, in regards to that, uh, you know, continuous learning sort of professional development? How does that play into sort of navigating career transitions? Uh, um, Mark? The transitions, like I, I kind of identified that I needed probably to refresh some of my skills, you know, specifically like software development sort of things like that. That would play a role maybe in the job that I was going to do at Andor. So I think there's so much online resources available now that you can kind of access YouTube or Udemy or LinkedIn Learning, so many training courses or that you have available to you. So that's what I used. I think for resources, friends and family, it can be very lonely whenever you're, because I, I find myself always quite insular in a sense of I'm always living in what I'm doing and it's hard to see forest for trees. And sometimes you just need to have that kind of sounding board, balancing people tell you it's giving you the real talk, you know. Um, thankfully, I have, I have a small group of friends, but it's because I've, <laughs> I've almost, I've not discarded, I've just kind of moved away from friends who kind of just give you lip service in a sense. Um, my friends are brutally honest and I love that. But with regards to resources, if you're looking for, um, so it just, that was just in compliment to uh, Ryan, something you said earlier, Mark, about just keeping friends and family close because it can, and particularly during a PhD, it can be dark times, very dark times, and you need light banter and a bit of a, a hug and a cuddle, you know, sometimes. But for uh, academic purposes, resources, it really, I mean, it's hard to find things that are free, that gives you structure. So I'm a definitely a structured approach kind of a person. I, I like classes, if you know what I mean. I like, I like to be in it. I think it might be um, I can be very easily distracted um, and I can move around different things all the time. So being forced to sit there for an hour and listen and then being given homework, you know, so that's why I thought the master's was the best thing for me. And I was lucky enough to be able to afford that at that time, particularly when it's part time as well. There are other things out there. There are free courses, particularly if you're in Queens right now doing your postdoc, doing your PhD, absolutely avail of the, the free courses that, that, um, that Queens offer. I'm assuming we still offer. There's, if you're interested in software or data analysis or data science each year, so far each year anyway, um, the Open Data NI have released a um, competition each year. So there's, 
there's this year's and most years so i can't say what's going to happen next year but i've got a funny feeling it's going to be the exact same format there's going to be three strands so category a is use some kind of open so use open data from the open data portal which by the way is fantastic because there's things from the most popular data set would be gp prescriptions so you can have a look through all the different prescriptions that are prescribed throughout the entirety of northern ireland uh the locations what they are the quantities and so on and the price through to the trees in belfast who knew but it's used some data from the uh, open data ni portal and do something with it build a dashboard build an app you get five thousand pounds to do it you write an application if you're successful you get five grand <laughs> you know this category b is doing something um outreachy kind of public engagement to advocate for open source and then an open data and then category c is taking any open data from anywhere so it could be Kaggle. You know, it could be from NISRA or anywhere else really, and that has uh, data available uh, and being able to do something with it that would maybe promote and help the public sector, um, which gives you a bit of kind of creativity in your mind, like what might, what might public sector, what the local councils might find interesting. So there are there are things out there like that um, that try to help public to get more engaged with whatever it is that they're currently doing, but also don't be afraid to ask. So if you're interested in something, ask somebody about it. Like my undergrad you know asking the, P the phd demonstrators you know careful not to ask a third year but um a first year they're all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed you ask them what you're doing for your phd you know talk to people find out if it's something you're interested in doing and where you can get help and ad advice books those are books youtube channels there's lots out there to try and spark that kind of um learning path but um it depends on you and what you're I, I again, as I say, I'm 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 structure based, so I had to go the, the expensive route. Thank you. Yeah, I think also sometimes people considering a transition away from academia and into the private sector may be questioning, you know, their ability to make a meaningful uh, contribution in comparison to remaining in academia. But is there a way those people can sort of reframe their mindset, shift their focus from this notion of, you know, not contributing as much to identifying sort of new ways they can make a difference in the private sector? Mark, do you have any? Yeah, well, I can kind of understand that. Like, you know, academia, you're kind of adding to a bill of knowledge, you know, through publications and things like that. But in terms of like making a meaningful impact in society, you know, you know, multiple companies do that, or you know, many, many companies like Andor, for example, we make cameras and technology that you know facilitate research. So people that are doing cutting edge science need, you know, high tech, sophisticated instruments to be able to do the research, or, or else it's not meaningless, but it's very hard to interpret. Or even in software development, you make making products that make people's lives easier, or provide services that make that analysis, for example, point out trends and highlight things for policy. There's so many different avenues that you can go down. If you want to make a meaningful impact, I wouldn't say don't be staying in academia for that reason specifically. Yeah. Roy or Rebecca, do you have anything to add to that point? How you define kind of meaningful impact? You know, what 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 is what to you is your meaningful impact? Is it something that you're for me, it was the same as you, Mark. It was the fact I was contributing to this body of science. You know, I was contributing to the the papers. Papers are going to be published, and struggling little PhD students like like me are going to find them and have this revelation of oh, that's what it is. You know, and um, which actually did happen in my PhD. You know, it's the how how then do I go from that to a nine to five desk job? 
doing something that may be mundane and repetitive. The reality is that we're being sheltered. If you stayed in, in academia, you've been sheltered, and that's the impression that you have until you get out there. You realize that you may be shackled to a desk nine to five, but as a PhD student, you're kind of shackled to other things and for much longer as well. So it could be from, from an experimental point of view, shackled to a lab, or it could be shackled to a desk in you know, FEA. <laughs> just, you're, you're just, there's different shackles, but your contribution aspect is, is kind of contributing to yourself. You know, you're, you're learning from other people and expanding your knowledge. You're contributing to the, the company because of your knowledge and that makes you feel better too. And if you're chosen a company that's resonating with your interest levels, then you can see everything that you have done and how you're making whatever it is that that company is doing work. You know, it could be troubleshooting. It could be project management. It could be the research and development as well, but you're using much more expensive stuff, which is really cool. The public sector, sorry, private sector isn't something to be afraid of. It's not um, gray suits. Well, it depends where you go, I guess, but it's not gray suits doing mundane stuff with lever arch files and filing cabinets. I mean, that's what you end up doing as a professor. So I mean, think about academia. <laughs> uh, for me, I think one way I look at it is uh, within academia, there is countless inventions that um, have you know, been invented by brilliant minds. But what you find is these inventions just sit down on the shelf and don't go anywhere else. You know because it's not innovative. You need, you need innovations. When you're going into the industry, innovations is what counts rather than inventions. Um, innovations will cater for people's needs. Innovations will solve problems. Innovations will you know, be used by companies that have a certain need, whether it's niche, whether it's a wider need. Um, innovations is what sells, essentially. So I think maybe it's about changing your mindset as well from being just inventive to being innovative because that's 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 the shift that is required if you're going into industry. And yes, of course, industry is slow. Certain places are slow and it can be slow for so many reasons. First of all, you might not even have the opportunity to start up your career in a certain level where you can even make decisions, you know. You come at the bottom of the pile and, you know, you fall in line like others. But like I always say to people, in every stage you go to in life, there is a table in every stage. Get your seat, get a seat on that table. If you don't have a seat on that table, you've got zero influence, regardless of the level that you find yourself. Get a seat on that table. And if you have a seat on that table, if you are inventive or you think you can be innovative, then your voice will give you that opportunity um, by way of influence to, you know, um, almost, I would say, practicalize um, a lot of the things that you want to change or a lot of things that you want to see. Always think innovation and always get a seat at the table. Yeah, thank you very much, Roy. And yeah, so for the panelists who are women or belong to minority groups, are there any specific challenges you guys have encountered um, throughout your careers in, in STEM and in, in business? And how did you overcome these challenges? Roy, do you want to begin? I, I, I don't think it's about us overcoming these challenges. We, we see the challenges everywhere, especially having the lack of women and in, in, in entrepreneurship, where you go to some of these events and it's all flush. Um, 
white men in, in most cases, very, very few women, very few, even more few black, black people and even fewer black women as well, just because of, you know, the, it's either the lack of support, the lack of um, confidence to actually delve into um, these areas. So I think, you know, there's, there's a lot of support right now that's coming up. I think there was an investment fund that was set up a couple of months ago, and it's just for women, women in business. So if, if you're a woman in business um, and you needed access to um, funding, you know, this particular set of angel investors only looked at, at females. So there's more and more opportunity for people to step outside their comfort zone, like I always say. But as you're doing it, always look for people to speak with. Always look for potential mentors. Look for people who have done it. I, I run a leadership talk program, and one thing I do is to shed spotlight on people of color who've been able to break through that glass ceiling. Now, being able to hear from them, understand the kind of challenges that they faced, and, 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 and understand what they did to overcome those challenges is mind-blowing. You know? And a lot of them have been women, very senior women, and, and, and they talk about and these multi-billion dollar company. And one of them said, look, she, she was a woman in an engineering company, oil and gas engineering company, and people always said things to her. People always looked down on her. They always talked down on her. And she said, look, she never, ever paid attention to the voices. She shielded herself from the voices. It will come, you know, but you need to focus on what's most important and what you're trying to achieve. Um, so I guess one way to overcome some of these challenges is you as an individual need to be intentional, you need to be focused, but you also need to have the confidence to step outside and don't listen to people. People will always talk. I mean, you can be sleeping and snoring and people will talk. You're minding your business and people are talking. So people will talk anyways, so you might as well just do it. So take that leap of faith and jump into what you need to do. Thank you, Roy. Rebecca, do you have... Um... I hate these kind of questions. Like, how do <laughs> how does it feel being a woman in a male dominated area? I'm like, I don't know anything else. What advice would I give a female in this area? Just keep doing what you're doing. Yes, there are female only women in business. There are those things out there for you. Explore them if you would like. Don't if you don't, you know, I don't find I've never found it to be a problem being a female in my industry. I've noticed now I have noticed a lot the distinction in that I'm female versus male both visually any conference I've been to it is middle-aged man gray suit you know <laughs> it's just the way it is at the moment I have been there's been misogynistic empl employers and there has been discrimination there's been comments and language being used and I mean haters gonna hate I feel sorry for them <laughs> that's really all I can say just don't let it get to you. Just keep on going because what benefit can it do to allow those words and those actions and those feelings and sentiments? How can it benefit you, you know, other than, other than empower you, I guess, to, uh, if you want to prove them wrong, do it, but don't prove them wrong because you want to prove them wrong. You know, prove them wrong because you want to do what you want to do. So, yeah, I, I, I just like, these kind of questions because it brings the focus in on so you're a female well done and I know no disrespect to your Philip because it is a common question and it is a problem there is a problem in, in the fact that there is a bias there's bias in all industries you know uh, be it female to male be it 
um, your sexual preference, be it your disabilities, be it your color, you know. <laughs> I mean, there's it's down to the most successful CEOs are tall, you know. <laughs> How does it feel being a short person in a CEO world? You know, it's there's going to be issues everywhere if you if you're looking for them. But there will be industries that you go into where they feel that um, perhaps you shouldn't be there because you're female. Well, guess what? I'm here. <laughs> what are you going to do about it? So I, I didn't really know how to answer the questions other than just to, just be you, do your thing and don't let people get to you. Yeah, thank you very much, Rebecca. So, yeah, we'll, we'll move on to the next section of questions, which is more specific to uh, collaboration and uh, impact. If Maybe you could share some examples of how does collaboration sort of play a role in your current work? And, you know, what, what are what are the sort of key benefits or challenges of collaborating with people from lots of different disciplines and, and sectors? Mark, do you have it? Uh, yeah, like I think I mentioned earlier, my kind of role is all about collaboration, especially when you're developing new products. You need people that have different you know, specialities. If you're developing a camera, you have to have engineers to, you know, develop the hardware and software engineers to write the the software that controls it. Um, it's not something that any one person or one specialty can actually implement fully. It's one of the things I think that kind of transfers well from academia. You know, if you're on the experiment, especially working in a large team, usually people have their own specialist area that they can bring to either the analysis or the setting up of the experiment. So it's a really key aspect. I think it's really important to try and foster as well. Thanks, Mark. Yeah, we've actually reached our time limit. I suppose, uh, is there any sort of quick final pieces of advice you guys have to, to leave our audience with, specifically those who may be considering sort of career transitions or, or new opportunities before we go? Well, for me, I, I would say, number one, be brutally honest with yourself what you want in life because that will shape everything. That will shape the decisions and the actions that you take. And once you're brutally honest, have a pathway. I want to achieve this. Yes, you might not have a five-year or 10-year plan, but write down what do I want to achieve and how am I going to achieve this and, and, and start building the steps you need to take achieve this whether it's upskilling whether it's networking and, and and some people it just might be networking not necessarily upskilling I've, I've spoken to people who've said oh I, I i'm shy i don't know how to network but you have to uh, you speak to people you have to be intentional i regard myself as an introverted extrovert i'm very comfortable in my space i'm very comfortable staying you know on my own and reflecting but when you see me outside, you would think that, oh, God, this guy loves to. No, I'm actually very exhausted at the end of the day after most of the conferences and events and all the social activities. I do it because I have to do it. I do it because I'm trying to achieve something. So everything has a strategic piece to it. Um, so be intentional. Step outside your comfort zone and um, speak to people. Speak to the right people. Because that way you would learn from others and um, you would get a, the right type of encouragement and the right type of guidance um, that will help you navigate in that path. Thank you very much, Roy. Rebecca, Mark, any final remarks? I would just say, like, if you're thinking of making a transition, even if you're not sure exactly what you want to do, but just if you're thinking about it, just do it. You know, 
if it doesn't work out, you can always go on to something else. But it's better to try it than to not try. Definitely failure is feedback. That's all I can ever say. You know, no one ever did anything the success and well, that's not the right phrase at all but it's like basically things get innovated and developed and so on through failure and feedback from that i would say you're going to eventually have to take a step out and be that as if you go through academia and through the the layers of academia and so on and you stay in, in that route you're still going to have to step out because you're going to have to encounter research projects that you may you're diverting from your your core experience and so on and you're going to have to speak to industry because you need to get that kind of impact and so on so eventually you are just be honest be truthful to yourself any interview I've done I've been horrifically honest and somehow managed to get jobs through that despite going I don't know (laughs) which I have done in interviews um so just be honest Uh, and I I would say I want to correct uh, something that I said prior Um, I kind of contradict myself by saying I'd never experienced or I've not been aware of issues or something within the field of being a female and so on. When, I, when then I said I have, I think it's more a case of I've not noticed because I just don't take notice. I'm aware of it. And for females out there who are trying to progress and don't know where to turn, there are organizations out there that can help. To people who are females and non-females, I would say contact me if you need any assistance, guidance, mentoring, or um, are curious about where you can go um, for anything, really. LinkedIn, email, whatever. Um, just drop me a line, and um, the worst that can happen is I ignore you. Rebecca, that's encouraging. <laughs> <laughs> be brutally honest. Always be honest. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'll, I'll make sure I do respond, but there is a possibility that you fall through the net. It, and that's, that's a good point, actually, if... If you're knocking on doors and they don't open, just keep knocking and knock harder. That's just, people get busy, things happen, life gets in the way sometimes, just keep pushing, keep trucking. Um, but I do mean it, if you, I have contacts in so many different areas of business and industry that if you're interested in something, I can, I can point you in the right direction, you know, or I can help you out if you're considering a career path. I can, yeah, just reach out. So offers there. And I promise I won't ignore you. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much for our panelists. Thank you, Mark, Roy, and Rebecca for you know taking the time out of your, I'm sure, very busy schedules to, to talk to us all. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed the discussion. If you want more episodes, visit our podcast page at go.qub.ac.uk slash podcast PDC. Bye.